Welcome to episode four of What SCOTUS Wrote Us. For our second case, I'll be reading the opinion of the court in New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin. Inside the episode description of every episode, I will include a direct link to the opinion I'm reading. I do this because I don't include any citations when I'm reading an opinion. I find that it provides a much better listening experience. Justice Thomas delivered the opinion of the court. In District of Columbia v. Heller and McDonald v. Chicago, we recognize that the Second and Fourteenth Amendments protect the right of an ordinary law-abiding citizen to possess a handgun in the home for self-defense. In this case, petitioners and respondents agree that ordinary law-abiding citizens have a similar right to carry handguns publicly for their self-defense. We too agree and now hold, consistent with Heller and McDonald, that the Second and Fourteenth Amendments protect an individual's right to carry a handgun for self-defense outside the home. The parties nevertheless dispute whether New York's licensing regime respects the constitutional right to carry handguns publicly for self-defense. In 43 states, the government issues licenses to carry based on objective criteria. But in six states, including New York, the government further conditions issuance of a license to carry on a citizen's showing of some additional special need. Because the state of New York issues public carry licenses only when an applicant demonstrates a special need for self-defense, we conclude that the state's licensing regime violates the Constitution. New York State has regulated the public carry of handguns at least since the early 20th century. In 1905, New York made it a misdemeanor for anyone over the age of 16 to have or carry concealed upon his person in any city or village of New York any pistol, revolver, or other firearm without a written license issued to him by a police magistrate. In 1911, New York's Sullivan Law expanded the state's criminal prohibition to the possession of all handguns, concealed or otherwise, without a government-issued license. New York later amended the Sullivan Law to clarify the licensing standard. Magistrates could issue to a person a license to have and carry a concealed pistol or revolver without regard to employment or place of possessing such weapon, only if that person proved good moral character and proper cause. Today's licensing scheme largely tracks that of the early 1900s. It is a crime in New York to possess any firearm without a license, whether inside or outside the home punishable by up to four years in prison or a $5,000 fine for a felony offense and one year in prison or a $1,000 fine for a misdemeanor. Meanwhile, possessing a loaded firearm outside one's home or place of business without a license is a felony, punishable by up to 15 years in prison. 
A licensed applicant who wants to possess a firearm at home or in his place of business must convince a licensing officer, usually a judge or a law enforcement officer, that among other things, he is of good moral character, has no history of crime or mental illness, and that no good cause exists for the denial of the license. If he wants to carry a firearm outside his home or place of business for self-defense, the applicant must obtain an unrestricted license to have and carry a concealed pistol or revolver. To secure that license, the applicant must prove that proper cause exists to issue it. If an applicant cannot make that showing, he can receive only a restricted license for public carry, which allows him to carry a firearm for a limited purpose such as hunting, target shooting, or employment. No New York statute defines proper cause, but New York courts have held that an applicant shows proper cause only if he can demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community. This special need standard is demanding. For example, living or working in an area noted for criminal activity does not suffice. Rather, New York courts generally require evidence of particular threats, attacks, or other extraordinary danger to personal safety. When a licensing officer denies an application, judicial review is limited. New York courts defer to an officer's application of the proper cause standard unless it is arbitrary and capricious. In other words, the decision must be upheld if the record shows a rational basis for it. The rule leaves applicants little recourse if their local licensing officer denies a permit. New York is not alone in requiring a permit to carry a handgun in public, but the vast majority of states, 43 by our count, shall issue jurisdictions where authorities must issue concealed carry licenses whenever applicants satisfy certain threshold requirements without granting licensing officials discretion to deny licenses based on a perceived lack of need or suitability. Meanwhile, only six states and the District of Columbia have may-issue licensing laws under which authorities have discretion to deny concealed carry licenses even when the applicant satisfies the statutory criteria. Usually because the applicant has not demonstrated cause or suitability for the relevant license. Aside from New York, then, only California, the District of Columbia, Hawaii, Maryland, Massachusetts, and New Jersey have analogs to the proper cause standard. All of these proper cause analogs have been upheld by the Courts of Appeals, save for the District of Columbia's which has been permanently enjoined since 2017. As set forth in the pleadings below, petitioners Brandon Koch and Robert Nash are law-abiding adult citizens of Rensselaer County, New York. Koch lives in Troy, 
while Nash lives in Avril Park. Petitioner New York State Rifle and Pistol Association, Incorporated is a public interest group organized to defend the Second Amendment rights of New Yorkers. Both Koch and Nash are members. In 2014, Nash applied for an unrestricted license to carry a handgun in public. Nash did not claim any unique danger to his personal safety. He simply wanted to carry a handgun for self-defense. In early 2015, the state denied Nash's application for an unrestricted license, but granted him a restricted license for hunting and target shooting only. In late 2016, Nash asked a licensing officer to remove the restrictions, citing a string of recent robberies in his neighborhood. After an informal hearing, the licensing officer denied the request. The officer reiterated that Nash's existing license permitted him to carry concealed for purposes of off-road backcountry outdoor activities similar to hunting, such as fishing, hiking, and camping, etc. But at the same time, the officer emphasized that the restrictions were intended to prohibit Nash from carrying concealed in any location typically open to and frequented by the general public. Between 2008 and 2017, Koch was in the same position as Nash. He faced no special dangers, wanted a handgun for general self-defense, and had only a restricted license permitting him to carry a handgun outside the home for hunting and target shooting. In late 2017, Koch applied to a licensing officer to remove the restrictions on his license, citing his extensive experience in safely handling firearms. Like Nash's application, Koch's was denied, except that the officer permitted Koch to carry to and from work. Respondents are the superintendent of the New York State Police who oversees the enforcement of the state's licensing laws and a New York Supreme Court justice who oversees the processing of licensing applications in Rensselaer County. Petitioners sued respondents for declaratory and injunctive relief, alleging that the respondents violated their Second and Fourteenth Amendment rights by denying their unrestricted license applications on the basis that they had failed to show proper cause, i.e., had failed to demonstrate a unique need for self-defense. The district court dismissed petitioner's complaint and the Court of Appeals affirmed. Both courts relied on the Court of Appeals' prior decision in Kachalski, which had sustained New York's proper cause standard holding that the requirement was substantially related to the achievement of an important governmental interest. We granted certiori to decide whether New York's denial of petitioner's license applications violated the Constitution. In Heller and McDonald, we held that the Second and Fourteenth Amendments 
protect an individual right to keep and bear arms for self-defense. In doing so, we held unconstitutional two laws that prohibited the possession and use of handguns in the home. In the years since, the courts of appeals have coalesced around a two-step framework for analyzing Second Amendment challenges that combines history with means and scrutiny. Today, we decline to adopt that two-part approach. In keeping with Heller, we hold that when the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct. To justify its regulation, the government may not simply posit that the regulation promotes an important interest. Rather, the government must demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. Only if a firearm regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition may a court conclude that the individual's conduct falls outside the Second Amendment's unqualified command. Since Heller and McDonald, the two-step test that courts of appeals have developed to assess Second Amendment claims proceeds as follows. At the first step, the government may justify its regulation by establishing that the challenged law regulates activity falling outside the scope of the right as originally understood. The courts of appeals then ascertain the original scope of the right based on its historical meaning. If the government can prove that the regulated conduct falls beyond the amendment's original scope, then the analysis can stop there. The regulated activity is categorically unprotected. But if the historical evidence at this step is inconclusive or suggests that the regulated activity is not categorically unprotected, the courts generally proceed to step two. At the second step, courts often analyze how close the law comes to the core of the Second Amendment right and the severity of the law's burden on that right. The courts of appeals generally maintain that the core Second Amendment right is limited to self-defense in the home. If a core Second Amendment right is burdened, courts apply strict scrutiny and ask whether the government can prove that the law is narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling governmental interest. Otherwise, they apply intermediate scrutiny and consider whether the government can show that the regulation is substantially related to the achievement of an important governmental interest. Both respondents and the United States largely agree with this consensus, arguing that intermediate scrutiny is appropriate when text and history are unclear in attempting to delineate the scope of the right. Despite the popularity of this two-step approach, it is one step too many. Step one of the predominant framework is broadly consistent with Heller, which demands a test rooted in the Second Amendment's text as informed by history. But Heller and McDonald do not support applying means and scrutiny in the Second Amendment context. Instead, the government must affirmatively prove 
that its firearms regulation is part of the historical tradition that delimits the outer bounds of the right to keep and bear arms. To show why Heller does not support applying means and scrutiny, we first summarize Heller's methodological approach to the Second Amendment. In Heller, we began with a textual analysis focused on the normal and ordinary meaning of the Second Amendment's language. That analysis suggested that the amendment's operative clause, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, guarantees the individual right to possess and carry weapons in case of confrontation. That does not depend on service in the militia. From there, we assessed whether our initial conclusion was confirmed by the historical background of the Second Amendment. We looked to history because it has always been widely understood that the Second Amendment codified a pre-existing right. The amendment was not intended to lay down a novel principle, but rather codified a right inherited from our English ancestors. After surveying English history dating from the late 1600s, along with American colonial views leading up to the founding, we found no doubt on the basis of both text and history that the Second Amendment conferred an individual right to keep and bear arms. We then canvassed the historical record and found yet further confirmation. That history included the analogous arms-bearing rights in state constitutions that preceded and immediately followed adoption of the Second Amendment, and how the Second Amendment was interpreted from immediately after its ratification through the end of the 19th century, when the principal dissent charged that the latter category of sources was illegitimate post-enactment legislative history, we clarified that examination of a variety of legal and other sources to determine the public understanding of a legal text in the period after its enactment or ratification was a critical tool of constitutional interpretation. In assessing the post-ratification history, we looked to four different types of sources. First, we reviewed three important founding-era legal scholars who interpreted the Second Amendment in published writings. Second, we looked to 19th-century cases that interpreted the Second Amendment and found that they universally support an individual right to keep and bear arms. Third, we examined the discussion of the Second Amendment in Congress and in public discourse after the Civil War, as people debated whether and how to secure constitutional rights for newly freed slaves. Fourth, we considered how post-Civil War commentators understood the right. After holding that the Second Amendment protected an individual right to armed self-defense, we also relied on the historical understanding of the amendment to demark the limits on the exercise of that right. We noted that 
Like most rights, the right secured by the Second Amendment is not unlimited. From Blackstone through the 19th century cases, commentators and courts routinely explained that the right was not a right to keep and carry any weapon whatsoever in any manner whatsoever and for whatever purpose. For example, we found it fairly supported by the historical tradition of prohibiting the carrying of dangerous and unusual weapons, that the Second Amendment protects the possession and use of weapons that are in common use at the time. That said, we cautioned that we were not undertaking an exhaustive historical analysis today of the full scope of the Second Amendment and moved on to considering the constitutionality of the District of Columbia's handgun ban. We assessed the lawfulness of that handgun ban by scrutinizing whether it comported with history and tradition. Although we noted that the ban would fail constitutional muster under any of the standards of scrutiny that we have applied to enumerated constitutional rights, we did not engage in means and scrutiny when resolving the constitutional question. Instead, we focused on the historically unprecedented nature of the district's ban, observing that few laws in the history of our nation have come close to that severe restriction. Likewise, when one of the dissents attempted to justify the district's prohibition with founding-era historical precedent, including various restrictive laws in the colonial period, we addressed each purported analog and concluded that they were either irrelevant or did not remotely burden the right of self-defense as much as an absolute ban on handguns. Thus, our earlier historical analysis sufficed to show that the Second Amendment did not countenance a complete prohibition on the use of the most popular weapon chosen by Americans for self-defense in the home. As the foregoing shows, Heller's methodology centered on constitutional text in history. Whether it came to defining the character of the right— individual or militia-dependent, suggesting the outer limits of the right or assessing the constitutionality of a particular regulation, Heller relied on text and history. It did not invoke any means-end test, such as strict or intermediate scrutiny. Moreover, Heller and MacDonald expressly rejected the application of any judge-empowering, interest-balancing inquiry that asks whether the statute burdens a protected interest in a way or to an extent that is out of proportion to the state's salutary effects upon other important governmental interests. We declined to engage in means-end scrutiny because the very enumeration of the right takes out of the hands of government even the third branch of government, the power to decide on a case-by-case basis whether the right is really worth insisting upon. We then concluded, a constitutional guarantee, subject to future judges' assessments of its usefulness, is no constitutional guarantee at all. 
we decline to engage in means and scrutiny because the very enumeration of the right takes out of the hands of government, even the third branch of government, the power to decide on a case-by-case basis whether the right is really worth insisting upon. We then concluded, a constitutional guarantee subject to future judges' assessments of its usefulness is no constitutional guarantee at all. In sum, the Courts of Appeals' second step is inconsistent with Heller's historical approach and its rejection of means and scrutiny. We reiterate that the standard for applying the Second Amendment is as follows. When the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct. The government must then justify its regulation by demonstrating that it is consistent with the nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. Only then may a court conclude that the individual's conduct falls outside the Second Amendment's unqualified command. This Second Amendment standard accords with how we protect other constitutional rights. Take, for instance, the freedom of speech in the First Amendment, to which Heller repeatedly compared the right to keep and bear arms. In that context, when the government restricts speech, the government wears the burden of proving the constitutionality of its actions. In some cases, that burden includes showing whether the expressive conduct falls outside of the category of protected speech. And to carry that burden, the government must generally point to historical evidence about the reach of the First Amendment's protections. And beyond the freedom of speech, our focus on history also comports with how we assess many other constitutional claims. If a litigant asserts the right in court to be confronted with the witness against him, we require courts to consult history to determine the scope of that right. Similarly, when a litigant claims a violation of his rights under the Establishment Clause, Members of this court look to history for guidance. We adopt a similar approach here. To be sure, historical analysis can be difficult. It sometimes requires resolving threshold questions and making nuanced judgments about which evidence to consult and how to interpret it. But reliance on history to inform the meaning of constitutional text especially text meant to codify a pre-existing right, is, in our view, more legitimate and more administrable than asking judges to make difficult empirical judgments about the costs and benefits of firearms restrictions, especially given their lack of expertise in the field. If the last decade of Second Amendment litigation has taught this court anything, It is that federal courts tasked with making such difficult empirical judgments regarding firearm regulations under the banner of intermediate scrutiny often defer to the determinations of legislatures. But while that judicial deference to legislative interest balancing is understandable and elsewhere appropriate, it is not deference that the Constitution demands here. 
The Second Amendment is the very product of an interest balancing by the people, and it surely elevates above all other interests the right of law-abiding, responsible citizens to use arms for self-defense. It is this balance, struck by the traditions of the American people, that demands our unqualified deference. The test that we set forth in Heller and apply today requires courts to assess whether modern firearms regulations are consistent with the Second Amendment's text and historical understanding. In some cases, that inquiry will be fairly straightforward. For instance, when a challenged regulation addresses a general societal problem that has persisted since the 18th century, the lack of a distinctly similar historical regulation addressing that problem is relevant evidence that the challenged regulation is inconsistent with the Second Amendment. Likewise, if earlier generations addressed the societal problem but did so through materially different means, that also could be evidence that a modern regulation is unconstitutional. And if some jurisdictions actually attempted to enact analogous regulations during this time, but those proposals were rejected on constitutional grounds, that rejection surely would provide some probative evidence of unconstitutionality. Heller itself exemplifies this kind of straightforward historical inquiry. One of the district's regulations challenged in Heller totally banned handgun possession in the home. The district in Heller addressed a perceived societal problem, firearm violence in densely populated communities, and it employed a regulation, a flat ban on the possession of handguns in the home that the founders themselves could have adopted to confront that problem. Accordingly, after considering founding-era historical precedent, including various restrictive laws in the colonial period, and finding that none was analogous to the district's ban, Heller concluded that the handgun ban was unconstitutional. New York's proper cause requirement concerns the same alleged societal problem addressed in Heller, handgun violence, primarily in urban areas. Following the course charted by Heller, we will consider whether historical precedent from before, during, and even after the founding evinces a comparable tradition of regulation. And as we explained below, we find no such tradition in the historical materials that respondents and their amici have brought to bear on that question. While the historical analogies here and in Heller are relatively simple to draw, other cases implicating unprecedented societal concerns or dramatic technological changes may require a more nuanced approach. The regulatory challenges posed by firearms today are not always the same as those that preoccupied the founders in 1791 or the Reconstruction generation in 1868. Fortunately, the founders created a constitution and a Second Amendment, intended to endure for ages to come and consequently to be adapted to the various crises of human affairs. Although its meaning is fixed according to the understandings of those who ratified it, 
the Constitution can and must apply to circumstances beyond those the founders specifically anticipated. We have already recognized in Heller at least one way in which the Second Amendment's historically fixed meaning applies to new circumstances. Its reference to arms does not apply only to those arms in existence in the 18th century. Just as the First Amendment protects modern forms of communications and the Fourth Amendment applies to modern forms of search, the Second Amendment extends prima facie to all instruments that constitute bearable arms, even those that were not in existence at the time of the founding. Thus, even though the Second Amendment's definition of arms is fixed according to its historical understanding, that general definition covers modern instruments that facilitate armed self-defense. Much like we use history to determine which modern arms are protected by the Second Amendment, so too does history guide our consideration of modern regulations that were unimaginable at the founding. When confronting such present-day firearm regulations, this historical inquiry that courts must conduct will often involve reasoning by analogy, a commonplace task for any lawyer or judge. Like all analogical reasoning, Determining whether a historical regulation is a proper analog for a distinctly modern firearm regulation requires a determination of whether the two regulations are relevantly similar. And because everything is similar in infinite ways to everything else, one needs some metric enabling the analogizer to assess which similarities are important and which are not. For instance, a green truck and a green hat are relevantly similar if one's metric is things that are green. They are not relevantly similar if the applicable metric is things you can wear. While we do not now provide an exhaustive survey of the features that render regulations relevantly similar under the Second Amendment, we do think that Heller and McDonald point to at least two metrics. How and why the regulations burden a law-abiding citizen's right to armed self-defense. As we stated in Heller and repeated in McDonald, individual self-defense is the central component of the Second Amendment right. Therefore, whether modern and historical regulations impose a comparable burden on the right of armed self-defense and whether that burden is comparably justified are central considerations when engaging in an analogical inquiry. To be clear, analogical reasoning under the Second Amendment is neither a regulatory straitjacket nor a regulatory blank check. On the one hand, courts should not uphold every modern law that remotely resembles a historical analog, because doing so risks endorsing outliers that our ancestors would never have accepted. On the other hand, analogical reasoning requires only that the government identify a well-established and representative historical analog, not a historical twin. So even if a modern-day regulation is not a dead ringer for historical precursors, it still may be analogous enough to pass constitutional muster. 
Consider, for example, Heller's discussion of long-standing laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in sensitive places such as schools and government buildings. Although the historical record yields relatively few 18th and 19th century sensitive places where weapons were altogether prohibited, for example, legislative assemblies, polling places, and courthouses, we are also aware of no disputes regarding the lawfulness of such prohibitions. We therefore can assume it's settled that these locations were sensitive places where arms carrying could be prohibited consistent with the Second Amendment, and courts can use analogies to those historical regulations of sensitive places to determine that modern regulations prohibiting the carry of firearms in new and analogous sensitive places are constitutionally permissible. Although we have no occasion to comprehensively define sensitive places in this case, we do think respondents err in their attempt to characterize New York's proper cause requirement as a sensitive place law. In their view, sensitive places where the government may lawfully disarm law-abiding citizens include all places where people typically congregate and where law enforcement and other public safety professionals are presumptively available. It is true that people sometimes congregate in sensitive places, and it is likewise true that law enforcement professionals are usually presumptively available in those locations. But expanding the category of sensitive places simply to all places of public congregation that are not isolated from law enforcement defines the category of sensitive places far too broadly. Respondents' argument would, in effect, exempt cities from the Second Amendment and would eviscerate the general right to publicly carry arms for self-defense that we discuss in detail below. Put simply, there is no historical basis for New York to effectively declare island of Manhattan a sensitive place, simply because it is crowded and protected generally by the New York City Police Department. Like Heller, we do not undertake an exhaustive historical analysis of the full scope of the Second Amendment, and we acknowledge that applying constitutional principles to novel modern conditions can be difficult and leave close questions at the margins. But that is hardly unique to the Second Amendment. It is an essential component of judicial decision-making under our enduring Constitution. We see no reason why judges frequently tasked with answering these kinds of historical, analogical questions cannot do the same for Second Amendment claims. Having made the constitutional standard endorsed in Heller more explicit, we now apply that standard to New York's proper cause requirement. It is undisputed that petitioners Koch and Nash, two ordinary law-abiding adult citizens, are part of the people whom the Second Amendment protects. Nor does any party dispute that handguns are weapons in common use today for self-defense. We therefore turn to whether the plain text of the Second Amendment protects Koch's and Nash's proposed course of conduct, carrying handguns publicly for self-defense. 
We have little difficulty concluding that it does. Respondents do not dispute this. Nor could they. Nothing in the Second Amendment's text draws a home-slash-public distinction with respect to the right to keep and bear arms. As we explained in Heller, the textual elements of the Second Amendment's operative clause, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed, guarantee the individual right to possess and carry weapons in case of confrontation. Heller further confirmed that the right to bear arms refers to the right to wear, bear, or carry upon the person or in the clothing or in a pocket for the purpose of being armed and ready for offensive or defensive action in a case of conflict with another person. This definition of bear naturally encompasses public carry. Although we remarked in Heller that the need for armed self-defense is perhaps most acute in the home, we did not suggest that the need was insignificant elsewhere. Many Americans hazard greater danger outside the home than in it. The text of the Second Amendment reflects that reality. The Second Amendment's plain text thus presumptively guarantees petitioners Koch and Nash a right to bear arms in public for self-defense. Most gun owners do not wear a holstered pistol at their hip in their bedroom or while sitting at the dinner table, although individuals often keep firearms in their home at the ready for self-defense. Most do not bear or carry them in the home beyond the moments of actual confrontation. To confine the right to bear arms to the home would nullify half of the Second Amendment's operative protections. Moreover, confining the right to bear arms to the home would make little sense given that self-defense is the central component of the Second Amendment right itself. After all, the Second Amendment guarantees an individual right to possess and carry weapons in case of confrontation, and confrontation can surely take place outside the home. Conceding that the Second Amendment guarantees a general right to public carry, respondents instead claim that the amendment permits a state to condition handgun carrying in areas frequented by the general public on a showing of non-speculative need for armed self-defense in those areas. To support that claim, the burden falls on respondents to show that New York's proper cause requirement is consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. Only if respondents carry that burden can they show that the pre-existing right codified in the Second Amendment and made applicable to the states through the 14th does not protect petitioners' proposed course of conduct. Respondents appeal to a variety of historical sources from the late 1200s to the early 1900s. We categorize these periods as follows. 1. Medieval to Early Modern England. 2 the American colonies and the early republic, three, antebellum America, 
four, Reconstruction, and five, the late 19th and early 20th centuries. We categorize these historical sources because when it comes to interpreting the Constitution, not all history is created equal. Constitutional rights are enshrined with the scope they were understood to have when the people adopted them. The Second Amendment was adopted in 1791. The 14th in 1868. Historical evidence that long predates either date may not illuminate the scope of the right if linguistic or legal conventions changed in the intervening years. It is one thing for courts to reach back to the 14th century for English practices that prevailed up to the period immediately before and after the framing of the Constitution. It is quite another to rely on an ancient practice that had become obsolete in England at the time of the adoption of the Constitution and never was acted upon or accepted in the colonies. As with historical evidence generally, courts must be careful when assessing evidence concerning English common law rights. The common law, of course, developed over time, and English common law practices and understandings at any given time in history cannot be indiscriminately attributed to the framers of our Constitution. Even the words of the Magna Carta, foundational as they were to the rights of America's forefathers, stood for very different things at the time of the separation of the American colonies from what they represented originally in 1215. Sometimes, in interpreting our own Constitution, it is better not to go too far back into antiquity for the best securities of our liberties. Unless evidence shows that medieval law survived to become our founding father's law. A long, unbroken line of common law precedent stretching from Bracton to Blackstone is far more likely to be part of our law than a short-lived 14th-century English practice. Similarly, we must also guard against giving post-enactment history more weight than it can rightly bear. It is true that in Heller we reiterated that evidence of how the Second Amendment was interpreted from immediately after its ratification through the end of the 19th century represented a critical tool of constitutional interpretation we therefore examined a variety of legal and other sources to determine the public understanding of the Second Amendment after its ratification, and in other contexts we have explained that a regular course of practice can liquidate and settle the meaning of disputed or indeterminate terms and phrases in the Constitution. In other words, we recognize that where a governmental practice has been open, widespread, and unchallenged since the early days of the Republic, the practice should guide our interpretation of an ambiguous constitutional provision. But to the extent later history contradicts what the text says, the text controls. Liquidating indeterminacies in written laws is far removed 
from expanding or altering them. Thus, post-ratification adoption or acceptance of laws that are inconsistent with the original meaning of the constitutional text obviously cannot overcome or alter that text. As we recognized in Heller itself, because post-Civil War discussions of the right to keep and bear arms took place 75 years after the ratification of the Second Amendment, they do not provide as much insight into its original meaning as earlier sources. And we made clear in Gamble that Heller's interest in mid to late 19th century commentary was secondary. Heller considered this evidence only after surveying what it regarded as a wealth of authority for its reading, including the text of the Second Amendment and state constitutions. In other words, this 19th century evidence was treated as mere confirmation of what the court thought had already been established. A final word on historical method. Strictly speaking, New York is bound to respect the right to keep and bear arms because of the 14th Amendment, not the second. Nonetheless, we've made clear that individual rights enumerated in the Bill of Rights and made applicable against the states through the 14th Amendment have the same scope as against the federal government. And we have generally assumed that the scope of the protection applicable to the federal government and states is pegged to the public understanding of the right when the Bill of Rights was adopted in 1791. We also acknowledge that there is an ongoing scholarly debate on whether courts should primarily rely on the prevailing understanding of an individual right when the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868 when defining its scope as well as the scope of the right against the federal government. We need not address this issue today because, as we explain below, the public understanding of the right to keep and bear arms in both 1791 and 1868 was, for all relevant purposes, the same with respect to public carry. With these principles in mind, we turn to respondents' historical evidence. Throughout modern Anglo-American history, the right to keep and bear arms in public has traditionally been subject to well-defined restrictions governing the intent for which one could carry arms, the manner of carry, or the exceptional circumstances under which one could not carry arms. But apart from a handful of late 19th century jurisdictions, the historical record compiled by respondents does not demonstrate a tradition of broadly prohibiting the public carry of commonly used firearms for self-defense. Nor is there any such historical tradition limiting public carry only to those law-abiding citizens who demonstrate a special need for self-defense. We conclude that respondents have failed to meet their burden to identify an American tradition justifying New York's proper cause requirement. Under Heller's text and history standard, the proper cause requirement is therefore unconstitutional. Respondents' substantial reliance on English history and custom before the founding makes some sense given our statement in Heller that the Second Amendment 
codified a right inherited from our English ancestors. But this court has long cautioned that the English common law is not to be taken in all respects to be that of America. Thus, the language of the Constitution cannot be interpreted safely except by reference to the common law and to British institutions as they were when the instrument was framed and adopted, not as they existed in the Middle Ages. We interpret the English history that respondents in the United States muster in light of these interpretive principles. We find that history ambiguous at best and see little reason to think that the framers would have thought it applicable in the New World. It is not sufficiently probative to defend New York's proper cause requirement. To begin, respondents and their amici point to several medieval English regulations from as early as 1285 that they say indicate a long-standing tradition of restricting the public carry of firearms. The most prominent is the 1328 Statute of Northampton, passed shortly after Edward II was deposed by force of arms and his son, Edward III, took the throne of a kingdom where tendency to turmoil and rebellion was everywhere apparent throughout the realm. At the time, bands of malefactors, knights, as well as those of lesser degree, harried the country, committing assaults and murders prompted by a more general spirit of insubordination that led to a decay in English national life. The Statute of Northampton was, in part, a product of the acute disorder that still plagued England. It provided that, with some exceptions, Englishmen could not come before the king's justices or other of the king's ministers doing their office with force and arms, nor bringing no force in a fray of the peace, nor to go nor ride armed by night nor by day in fairs, markets, nor in the presence of the justices or other ministers, nor in no part elsewhere upon pain to forfeit their armor to the king and their bodies to prison at the king's pleasure. Respondents argue that the prohibition on riding or going armed was a sweeping restriction on public carry of self-defense weapons that would ultimately be adopted in colonial America and justify onerous public carry regulations. Notwithstanding the ink the parties spill over this provision, the Statute of Northampton, at least as it was understood during the Middle Ages, has little bearing on the Second Amendment adopted in 1791. The Statute of Northampton was enacted nearly 20 years before the Black Death, more than 200 years before the birth of Shakespeare, more than 350 years before the Salem Witch Trials, more than 450 years before the ratification of the Constitution, and nearly 550 years before the adoption of the 14th Amendment. The statute's prohibition on going or riding armed obviously did not contemplate handguns, given that they did not appear in Europe until about the mid-1500s. Rather, it appears to have been centrally concerned with the wearing of armor. If it did apply beyond armor, it applied to such weapons as the lance gay, a 12-foot-long lightweight lance. 
The statute's apparent focus on armor and perhaps weapons like lance gaze makes sense given that armor and lances were generally worn or carried only when one intended to engage in lawful combat or, as most early violations of the statute show, to breach the peace. Contrast these arms with daggers. In the medieval period, almost everyone carried a knife or a dagger in his belt. While these knives were used by knights in warfare, civilians wore them for self-protection, among other things. Respondents point to no evidence suggesting the statute applied to the smaller medieval weapons that strike us as the most analogous to modern handguns. When handguns were introduced in England during the Tudor and early Stuart eras, they did prompt royal efforts at suppression. For example, Henry VIII issued several proclamations decrying the proliferation of handguns, and Parliament passed several statutes restricting their possession. But Henry VIII's displeasure with handguns arose not primarily from concerns about their safety, but rather their inefficacy. Henry VIII worried that handguns threatened Englishmen's proficiency with the longbow, a weapon many believed was crucial to English military victories in the 1300s and 1400s, including the legendary English victories at Crecy and Agincourt. Similarly, James I considered small handguns called dags utterly unserviceable for defense, military practice, and other lawful use. But in any event, James I's proclamation in 1616 was the last one regarding civilians carrying dags. After this, the question faded without explanation, so by the time Englishmen began to arrive in America in the early 1600s, the public carry of handguns was no longer widely proscribed. When we look to the latter half of the 17th century, respondents' case only weakens. As in Heller, we consider this history between the Stuart Restoration in 1660 and the Glorious Revolution in 1688 to be particularly instructive. During that time, the Stuart kings Charles II and James II ramped up efforts to disarm their political opponents an experience that caused Englishmen to be jealous of their arms. In one notable example, the government charged Sir John Knight, a prominent detractor of James II, with violating the statute of Northampton because he allegedly did walk about the streets armed with guns and that he went into the Church of St. Michael in Bristol at the time of divine service with a gun to terrify the king's subjects. Chief Justice Holt explained that the statute of Northampton had almost gone in disuetudinum, meaning that the statute had largely become obsolete through disuse. And the Chief Justice further explained that the act of going armed to terrify the king's subjects was a great offense at the common law, and that the statute of Northampton is but an affirmance of that law. Thus, one's conduct will come within the act, i.e., would terrify the king's subjects, only where the crime shall appear to be malo animo. 
with evil intent or malice. Knight was ultimately acquitted by the jury. Just three years later, Parliament responded by writing the predecessor to our Second Amendment into the 1689 English Bill of Rights, guaranteeing that Protestants may have arms for their defense suitable to their conditions and as allowed by law. Although this right was initially limited, it was restricted to Protestants and held only against the Crown, but not Parliament. It represented a watershed in English history. Englishmen had never before claimed the right of the individual to arms. And as that individual right matured, by the time of the founding, the right to keep and bear arms was understood to be an individual right protecting against both public and private violence. To be sure, the statute of Northampton survived both Sir John Knight's case and the English Bill of Rights, but it was no obstacle to public carry for self-defense in the decades leading to the founding. Sergeant William Hawkins, in his widely read 1716 treaties, confirmed that no wearing of arms is within the meaning of the statute of Northampton, unless it be accompanied with such circumstances as are apt to terrify the people. To illustrate that proposition, Hawkins noted as an example that persons of quality were in no danger of offending against this statute by wearing common weapons because, in those circumstances, it would be clear that they had no intention to commit any act of violence or disturbance of the peace. Respondents do not offer any evidence showing that in the early 18th century or after, the mere public carrying of a handgun would terrify people. In fact, the opposite seems to have been true. As time went on, domestic gun culture in England softened. Any terror that firearms might once have conveyed. Thus, whatever place handguns had in English society during the Tudor and Stuart reigns, by the time we reached the 18th century, and near the founding, they had gained a fairly secure footing in English culture. At the very least, we cannot conclude from this historical record that by the time of the founding, English law would have justified restricting the right to publicly bear arms suited for self-defense only to those who demonstrate some special need for self-protection. Respondents next point us to the history of the colonies and early republic. But there is little evidence of an early American practice of regulating public carry by the general public. This should come as no surprise. English subjects founded the colonies at about the time England had itself begun to eliminate restrictions on the ownership and use of handguns. In the colonial era, respondents point to only three restrictions on public carry. For starters, we doubt that three colonial regulations could suffice to show a tradition of public carry regulation. In any event, even looking at these laws on their own terms, we are not convinced that they regulated public carry akin to the New York law before us. Two of the statutes were substantively identical. Colonial Massachusetts and New Hampshire both authorized justices of the peace to arrest all affrayers, rioters, disturbers, 
or breakers of the peace, and such as shall ride or go armed offensively by night or by day in fear or affray of their majesty's liege people. Respondents in their amici contend that being armed defensively meant bearing any offensive weapons, including firearms. In particular, respondents amici argue that offensive arms in the 1600s and 1700s were what Blackstone and others referred to as dangerous or unusual weapons. A category that they say included firearms. Respondents, their amici, and the dissent all misunderstand these statutes. Far from banning the carry of any class of firearms, they merely codified the existing common law offense of bearing arms to terrorize the people, as had the statute of Northampton itself. For instance, the Massachusetts statute proscribed going armed offensively in fear or affray of the people, indicating that these laws were modeled after the statute of Northampton to the extent that the statute would have been understood to limit public carry in the late 1600s. Moreover, it makes very little sense to read these statutes as banning the public carry of all firearms, just as a few years after Chief Justice Holt in Sir John Knight's case indicated that the English common law did not do so. Regardless, even if respondents' reading of these colonial statutes were correct, it would still do little to support restrictions on the public carry of handguns today. At most, respondents can show that colonial legislatures sometimes prohibited the carrying of dangerous and unusual weapons, a fact we already acknowledged in Heller. Drawing from this historical tradition, we explained there that the Second Amendment protects only the carrying of weapons that are those in common use at the time, as opposed to those that are highly unusual in society at large. Whatever the likelihood that handguns were considered dangerous and unusual during the colonial period, they are indisputably in common use for self-defense today. They are, in fact, the quintessential self-defense weapon. Thus, even if these colonial laws prohibited the carrying of handguns because they were considered dangerous and unusual weapons in the 1690s, they provide no justification for laws restricting the public carry of weapons that are unquestionably in common use today. The third statute invoked by respondents was enacted in East New Jersey in 1686. It prohibited the concealed carry of pocket pistols or other unusual or unlawful weapons, and it further prohibited planters from carrying all pistols unless in military service or if strangers when traveling through the province. These restrictions do not meaningfully support respondents. The law restricted only concealed carry, not all public carry, and its restrictions applied only to certain unusual or unlawful weapons, including pocket pistols. It also did not apply to all pistols, let alone all firearms. Pocket pistols had barrel lengths of perhaps three or four inches. 
far smaller than the 6-inch to 14-inch barrels found on the other belt and hip pistols that were commonly used for lawful purposes in the 1600s. Moreover, the law prohibited only the concealed carry of pocket pistols. It presumably did not, by its terms, touch the open carry of larger, presumably more common pistols, except as to planters. In colonial times, a planter was simply a farmer or plantation owner who settled new territory. While the reason behind this singular restriction is not entirely clear, planters may have been targeted because colonial-era East New Jersey was riven with strife and excitement between planters and the colony's proprietors respecting titles to the soil. In any event, we cannot put meaningful weight on this solitary statute. First, although the planter restriction may have prohibited the public carry of pistols, it did not prohibit planters from carrying long guns for self-defense, including the popular musket and carbine. Second, it does not appear that the statute survived for very long. By 1694, East New Jersey provided that no slave be permitted to carry any gun or pistol into the woods or plantations unless their owner accompanied them. If slave-owning planters were prohibited from carrying pistols, it is hard to comprehend why slaves would have been able to carry them in the planter's presence. Moreover, there is no evidence that the 1686 statute survived the 1702 merger of East and West New Jersey. At most, eight years of history in half a colony, roughly a century before the founding, sheds little light on how to properly interpret the Second Amendment. Respondents next direct our attention to three late 18th century and early 19th century statutes, but each parallels the colonial statutes already discussed. One 1786 Virginia statute provided that no man, great nor small, shall go nor ride armed by day nor by night, in fairs or markets, or in other places in terror of the country. A Massachusetts statute from 1795 commanded justices of the peace to arrest all affrayers, rioters, disturbers, or breakers of the peace, and such as shall ride or go armed offensively to the fear or terror of the good citizens of this commonwealth. And an 1801 Tennessee statute likewise required any person who would publicly ride or go armed to the terror of the people or privately carry any dirk, large knife, pistol, or other dangerous weapon to the fear or terror of any person to post a surety, otherwise his continued violation of the law would be punished as for a breach of the peace or riot at common law. A by now familiar thread runs through these three statutes, 
They prohibit bearing arms in a way that spreads fear or terror among the people. As we have already explained, Chief Justice Holt, in Sir John Knight's case, interpreted this in terrorum populi element to require something more than merely carrying a firearm in public. Respondents give us no reason to think that the founding generation held a different view. Thus, all told, in the century leading up to the Second Amendment and in the first decade after its adoption, there is no historical basis for concluding that the pre-existing right enshrined in the Second Amendment permitted broad prohibitions on all forms of public carry. Only after the ratification of the Second Amendment in 1791 did public carry restrictions proliferate. Respondents rely heavily on these restrictions, which generally fell into three categories, common law offenses, statutory prohibitions, and surety statutes. None of these restrictions imposed a substantial burden on public carry analogous to the burden created by New York's restrictive licensing regime. Common Law Offenses As during the colonial and founding periods, the common law offenses of affray or going armed to the terror of the people continued to impose some limits on firearm carry in the antebellum period. But as with the earlier periods, there is no evidence indicating that these common law limitations impaired the right of the general population to peaceable public carry. For example, the Tennessee Attorney General once charged a defendant with the common law offense of affray, arguing that the man committed the crime when he armed himself with dangerous and unusual weapons in such a manner as will naturally cause terror to the people. More specifically, the indictment charged that Simpson, with force and arms being arrayed in a warlike manner, unlawfully, and to the great terror and disturbance of divers' good citizens, did make an affray. The Tennessee Supreme Court quashed the indictment, holding that the statute of Northampton was never part of Tennessee law. But even assuming that Tennesseans' ancestors brought with them the common law associated with the statute, the Simpson Court found that if the statue had made as an independent ground of a fray the mere arming of oneself with firearms, the Tennessee Constitution's Second Amendment analog had completely abrogated it. At least in light of that constitutional guarantee, the court did not think that it could attribute to the mere carrying of arms a necessarily consequent operation as terror to the people. Perhaps more telling was the North Carolina Supreme Court's decision in State v. Huntley. Unlike the Tennessee Supreme Court in Simpson, the Huntley Court held that the common law offense codified by the statute of Northampton was part of the state's law. However, consistent with the statute's long-settled interpretation, 
the North Carolina Supreme Court acknowledged that the carrying of a gun for a lawful purpose per se constitutes no offense. Only carrying for a wicked purpose with a mischievous result constituted a crime. Other state courts likewise recognized that the common law did not punish the carrying of deadly weapons per se, but only the carrying of such weapons for the purpose of an affray and in such manner as to strike terror to the people. Therefore, those who sought to carry firearms publicly and peaceably in antebellum America were generally free to do so. Statutory Prohibitions In the early to mid-19th century, some states began enacting laws that proscribed the concealed carry of pistols and other small weapons. As we recognized in Heller, the majority of the 19th century courts to consider the question held that these prohibitions on carrying concealed weapons were lawful under the Second Amendment or state analogs. Respondents unsurprisingly cite these statutes and decisions upholding them as evidence that states were historically free to ban public carry. In fact, however, the history reveals a consensus that states could not ban public carry altogether. Respondents cited opinions agreed that concealed carry prohibitions were constitutional only if they did not similarly prohibit open carry. That was true in Alabama. It was also true in Louisiana. Kentucky, meanwhile, went one step further. The state Supreme Court invalidated a concealed carry prohibition. The Georgia Supreme Court's decision in Nunn v. State is particularly instructive. Georgia's 1837 statute broadly prohibited wearing or carrying pistols as arms of offense or defense without distinguishing between concealed and open carry. To the extent the 1837 Act prohibited carrying certain weapons secretly, the court explained it was valid. But to the extent that the Act also prohibited bearing arms openly, the court went on, it was in conflict with the Constitution. The Georgia Supreme Court's treatment of the state's general prohibition on the public carriage of handguns indicates that it was considered beyond the constitutional pale in antebellum America to altogether prohibit public carry. Finally, we agree that Tennessee's prohibition on carrying publicly or privately any belt or pocket pistol. That said, when the Tennessee Supreme Court addressed the constitutionality of a substantively identical successor provision, the court read this language to permit the public carry of larger military-style pistols because any categorical prohibition on their carry would violate the constitutional right to keep arms. All told, these antebellum state court decisions evince a consensus view 
that states could not altogether prohibit the public carry of arms protected by the Second Amendment or state analogs. Surety Statutes In the mid-19th century, many jurisdictions began adopting surety statutes that required certain individuals to post bond before carrying weapons in public. Although respondents seize on these laws to justify the proper cause restriction, their reliance on them is misplaced. These laws were not bans on public carry, and they typically targeted only those threatening to do harm. As discussed earlier, Massachusetts had prohibited riding or going armed offensively to the fear or terror of the good citizens of this commonwealth since 1795. In 1836, Massachusetts enacted a new law providing, quote, If any person shall go armed with a dirk, dagger, sword, pistol, or other offensive and dangerous weapon without reasonable cause to fear an assault or other injury or violence to his person or to his family or property, he may, on complaint of any person having reasonable cause to fear an injury or breach of the peace, be required to find sureties for keeping the peace for a term not exceeding six months, with the right of appealing as before provided. In short, the Commonwealth required any person who was reasonably likely to breach the peace and who, standing accused, could not prove a special need for self-defense to post a bond before publicly carrying a firearm. Between 1838 and 1871, Nine other jurisdictions adopted variants of the Massachusetts law. Contrary to respondents' position, these reasonable cause laws in no way represented the direct precursor to the proper cause requirement. While New York presumes that individuals have no public carry right without a showing of heightened need, The surety statutes presumed that individuals had a right to public carry that could be burdened only if another could make out a specific showing of reasonable cause to fear an injury or breach of the peace. As William Rawl explained in an influential treatise, an individual's carrying of arms was sufficient cause to require him to give surety of the peace only when attended with circumstances giving just reason to fear that he purposes to make an unlawful use of them. Then, even on such a showing, the surety laws did not prohibit public carry in locations frequented by the general community. Rather, an accused arms-bearer could go on carrying without criminal penalty so long as he posted money that would be forfeited if he breached the peace or injured others, a requirement from which he was exempt if he needed self-defense. Thus, unlike New York's regime, a showing of special need was required only after an individual was reasonably accused of intending to injure another or breach the peace. And even then, 
proving special needs simply avoided a fee rather than a ban. All told, therefore, under surety laws, everyone started out with robust carrying rights, and only those reasonably accused were required to show a special need in order to avoid posting a bond. These antebellum special need requirements did not expand caring for the responsible, it shrank burdens on caring by the allegedly reckless. One court of appeals has nonetheless remarked that these surety laws were a severe constraint on anyone thinking of carrying a weapon in public. That contention has little support in the historical record. Respondents cite no evidence showing the average size of surety postings. And given that surety laws were intended merely for prevention and were not meant as any degree of punishment, the burden these surety statutes may have had on the right to public carry was likely too insignificant to shed light on New York's proper cause standard, a violation of which can carry a four-year prison term or a $5,000 fine. In Heller, we noted that founding-era laws punishing unlawful discharge with a small fine and forfeiture of the weapon, not with significant criminal penalties, likely did not prevent a person in the founding era from using a gun to protect himself or his family from violence, or that, if he did so, the law would be enforced against him. Similarly, we have little reason to think that the hypothetical possibility of posting a bond would have prevented anyone from carrying a firearm for self-defense in the 19th century. Besides, respondents offer little evidence that authorities ever enforced surety laws. The only recorded case that we know of involved the justice of the peace declining to require a surety, even when the complainant alleged that the arms-bearer did threaten to beat, wound, maim, and kill him. And one scholar who canvassed 19th century newspapers, which routinely reported on local judicial matters, found only a handful of other examples in Massachusetts and the District of Columbia, all involving black defendants who may have been targeted for selective or pretextual enforcement. That is surely too slender a read on which to hang a historical tradition of restricting the right to public carry. Respondents also argue that surety statutes were severe restrictions on firearms because the reasonable cause to fear standard was essentially pro forma, given that merely carrying firearms in populous areas breached the peace. If mere carrying of handguns breached the peace, it would be odd to draft a surety statute requiring a complainant to demonstrate reasonable cause to fear an injury or breach of the peace, rather than a reasonable likelihood that the arms-bearer carried a covered weapon. After all, if it was the nature of the weapon rather than the manner of carry that was dispositive, 
then the reasonable fear requirement would be redundant. Moreover, the overlapping scope of surety statutes and criminal statutes suggest that the former were not viewed as substantial restrictions on public carry. For example, when Massachusetts enacted its surety statute in 1836, it reaffirmed its 1794 criminal prohibition on going armed offensively to terror of the people. And Massachusetts continued to criminalize the carrying of various dangerous weapons well after passing the 1836 surety statute. Similarly, Virginia had criminalized the concealed carry of pistols since 1838. Nearly a decade before it enacted its surety statute, it is unlikely that these surety statutes constituted a severe restraint on public carry let alone a restriction tantamount to a ban, when they were supplemented by direct criminal prohibitions on specific weapons and methods of carry. To summarize, the historical evidence from antebellum America does demonstrate that the manner of public carry was subject to reasonable regulation. Under the common law, individuals could not carry deadly weapons in a manner likely to terrorize others. Similarly, although surety statutes did not directly restrict public carry, they did provide financial incentives for responsible arms carrying. Finally, states could lawfully eliminate one kind of public carry, concealed carry, so long as they left open the option to carry openly. None of these historical limitations on the right to bear arms approach New York's proper cause requirement because none operated to prevent law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from carrying arms in public for that purpose. Evidence from around the adoption of the 14th Amendment also fails to support respondents' position. For the most part, respondents and the United States ignore the outpouring of discussion of the right to keep and bear arms in Congress and in public discourse, as people debated whether and how to secure constitutional rights for newly freed slaves after the Civil War. Of course, we are not obliged to sift the historical materials for evidence to sustain New York's statute. That is respondents' burden. Nevertheless, we think a short review of the public discourse surrounding Reconstruction is useful in demonstrating how public carry for self-defense remained a central component of the protection that the 14th Amendment secured for all citizens. A short prologue is in order. Even before the Civil War commenced in 1861, this court indirectly affirmed the importance of the right to keep and bear arms in public. Writing for the court in Dred Scott v. Sanford, Chief Justice Taney offered what he thought was a parade of horribles that would result from recognizing that free blacks were citizens of the United States. If blacks were citizens, Taney fretted, they would be entitled to the privileges and immunities of citizens including the right to keep and carry arms wherever they went. Thus, 
even Chief Justice Taney recognized, albeit unenthusiastically in the case of Blacks, that public carry was a component of the right to keep and bear arms, a right free Blacks were often denied in antebellum America. After the Civil War, of course, the exercise of this fundamental right by freed slaves was systematically thwarted. This court has already recounted some of the Southern abuses violating Blacks' right to keep and bear arms. In the years before the 39th Congress proposed the 14th Amendment, the Freedmen's Bureau regularly kept it abreast of the dangers to Blacks and Union men in the post-Bellum South. The reports described how Blacks used publicly carried weapons to defend themselves and their communities. For example, the Bureau reported that a teacher from a Freedmen's School in Maryland had written to say that because of attacks on the school, both the mayor and sheriff have warned that the colored people to go armed to school, which they do, and that the superintendent of schools came down and brought the teacher a revolver for his protection. Witnesses before the Joint Committee on Reconstruction also described the depredations visited on Southern blacks and the efforts they made to defend themselves. One Virginia music professor related that when two Union men were attacked, they drew their revolvers and held their assailants at bay. An assistant commissioner to the Bureau from Alabama similarly reported that men were robbing and disarming Negroes upon the highway, indicating that blacks indeed carried arms publicly for their self-protection, even if not always with success. Blacks had procured great numbers of old army muskets and revolvers, particularly in Texas, and employed them to protect themselves with vigor and audacity. Seeing that government was inadequately protecting them, there was the strongest desire on the part of the freedmen to secure arms, revolvers particularly. On July 6, 1868, Congress extended the 1866 Freedmen's Bureau Act and reaffirmed that freedmen were entitled to the full and equal benefit of all laws and proceedings concerning personal liberty and personal security, including the constitutional right to keep and bear arms. That same day, a bureau official reported that freedmen in Kentucky and Tennessee were still constantly under threat. No union man or Negro who attempts to take any active part in politics or the improvement of his race is safe a single day, and nearly all sleep upon their arms at night. Of course, even during Reconstruction, the right to keep and bear arms had limits, but those limits were consistent with a right of the public to peaceably carry handguns for self-defense. For instance, when General D.E. Sickles issued a decree in 1866 preempting South Carolina's black codes, which prohibited firearm possession by blacks, he stated, quote, The constitutional rights of all loyal and well-disposed inhabitants to bear arms will not be infringed. Nevertheless, this shall not be construed to sanction the unlawful practice of carrying concealed weapons. And no disorderly person, vagrant, 
or disturber of the peace shall be allowed to bear arms. Around the same time, the editors of The Loyal Georgian, a prominent Black-owned newspaper, were asked by, quote, a colored citizen, whether colored persons have a right to own and carry firearms. The editors responded that Blacks had the same right to own and carry firearms that other citizens have. In borrowing language from a Freedmen's Bureau circular, the editors maintain that any person, white or black, may be disarmed if convicted of making an improper or dangerous use of weapons, even though no military or, or civil officer has the right or authority to disarm any class of people, thereby placing them at the mercy of others. As for Reconstruction-era state regulations, there was little innovation over the kinds of public carry restrictions that had been commonplace in the early 19th century. For instance, South Carolina in 1870 authorized the arrest of all who go armed offensively to the terror of the people. Parroting earlier statutes that codified the common law offense. That same year, after it cleaved from Virginia, West Virginia enacted a surety statute nearly identical to the one it inherited from Virginia. Also, in 1870, Tennessee essentially reenacted its 1821 prohibition on the public carry of handguns. But as explained above, Tennessee courts interpreted that statute to exempt large pistols suitable for military use. Respondents and the United States, however, direct our attention primarily to two late 19th century cases in Texas. In 1871, Texas law forbade anyone from carrying on or about his person any pistol unless he has reasonable grounds for fearing an unlawful attack on his person. The court reasoned that the Second Amendment and the state's constitutional analog protected only those arms as are useful and proper to an armed militia, including holster pistols but not other kinds of handguns. Beyond that constitutional holding, the English court further opined that the law was not contrary to public policy, given that it made all necessary exceptions allowing deadly weapons to be carried as means of self-defense and therefore fully covered all wants of society. Four years later, in State v. Duke, the Texas Supreme Court modified its analysis. The court reinterpreted Texas's state constitution to protect not only military-style weapons, but rather all arms as are commonly kept according to the customs of the people and are appropriate for open and manly use and self-defense. On that understanding, the court recognized that in addition to holster pistols, the right to bear arms covered the carry of such pistols at least as are not adapted to being carried concealed. Nonetheless, after expanding the scope of firearms that warranted state constitutional protection, Duke held that requiring any pistol bearer to have reasonable grounds fearing an unlawful attack on one's person was a legitimate 
and highly proper regulation of handgun carriage. Duke thus concluded that the 1871 statute appeared to have respected the right to carry a pistol openly when needed for self-defense. We acknowledge that the Texas cases support New York's proper cause requirement, which one can analogize to Texas's reasonable grounds standard. But the Texas statute and the rationales set forth in English and Duke are outliers. In fact, only one other state, West Virginia, adopted a similar public carry statute before 1900. The West Virginia Supreme Court upheld that prohibition, reasoning that no handguns of any kind were protected by the Second Amendment, a rationale endorsed by no other court during this period. The Texas decisions therefore provide little insight into how post-bellum courts viewed the right to carry protected arms in public. In the end, while we recognize the support that post-bellum Texas provides for respondents' view, we will not give disproportionate weight to a single state statute and a pair of state court decisions. As in Heller, we will not stake our interpretation of the Second Amendment upon a single law, in effect a single state, that contradicts the overwhelming weight of other evidence regarding the right to keep and bear arms for defense in public. Finally, respondents point to the slight uptick in gun regulation during the late 19th century, principally in the Western territories. As we suggested in Heller, however, late 19th century evidence cannot provide much insight into the meaning of the Second Amendment when it contradicts earlier evidence. Here, moreover, Respondents' reliance on late 19th century laws has several serious flaws even beyond their temporal distance from the founding. The vast majority of the statutes that respondents invoke come from the Western territories. Two territories prohibited the carry of pistols in towns, cities, and villages, but seemingly permitted the carry of rifles and other long guns everywhere. Two others prohibited the carry of all firearms in towns, cities, and villages, including long guns. And one territory completely prohibited public carry of pistols everywhere, but allowed the carry of shotguns or rifles for certain purposes. These territorial restrictions failed to justify New York's proper cause requirement for several reasons. First, the bare existence of these localized restrictions cannot overcome the overwhelming evidence of an otherwise enduring American tradition permitting public carry. For starters, the very transitional and temporary character of the American territorial system often permitted legislative improvisations which might not have been tolerated in a permanent setup. These territorial legislative improvisations, which conflict with the nation's earlier approach to firearm regulation, are most unlikely to reflect the origins and continuing significance of the Second Amendment, and we do not consider them instructive. The exceptional nature of these Western restrictions is all the more apparent when one considers the minuscule territorial populations 
who would have lived under them. To put that point into perspective, one need not look further than the 1890 census. Roughly 62 million people lived in the United States at that time. Arizona, Idaho, New Mexico, Oklahoma, and Wyoming combined to account for 420,000 of those inhabitants, about two-thirds of 1% of the population. But simply, these Western restrictions were irrelevant to more than 99% of the American population. We have already explained that we will not stake our interpretation of the Second Amendment upon a law in effect in a single state or a single city that contradicts the overwhelming weight of other evidence regarding the right to keep and bear arms, including in public for self-defense. Similarly, we will not stake our interpretation on a handful of temporary territorial laws that were enacted nearly a century after the Second Amendment's adoption, governed less than 1% of the American population, and also contradict the overwhelming weight of other, more contemporaneous historical evidence. Second, because these territorial laws were rarely subject to judicial scrutiny, we do not know the basis of their perceived legality. When states generally prohibited both open and concealed carry of handguns in the late 19th century, state courts usually upheld the restrictions when they exempted army revolvers or read the laws to exempt at least that category of weapons. Those state courts that upheld broader prohibitions without qualification generally operated under a fundamental misunderstanding of the right to bear arms, as expressed in Heller. For example, the Kansas Supreme Court upheld a complete ban on public carry enacted by the city of Salina in 1901 based on the rationale that the Second Amendment protects only the right to bear arms as a member of the state militia or some other military organization provided for by law. That was clearly erroneous. Absent any evidence explaining why these unprecedented prohibitions on all public carry were understood to comport with the Second Amendment, we failed to see how they informed the origins and continuing significance of the amendment. Finally, these territorial restrictions deserve little weight because they were, consistent with the transitory nature of territorial government, short-lived. Some were held unconstitutional shortly after passage. Others did not survive a territory's admission to the Union as a state. Thus, they appear more as passing regulatory efforts by not yet mature jurisdictions on the way to statehood, rather than part of an enduring American tradition of state regulation. Beyond these territories, respondents identify one western state, Kansas, that instructed cities with more than 15,000 inhabitants to pass ordinances prohibiting the public carry of firearms. By 1890, the only cities meeting the population threshold were Kansas City, Topeka, and Wichita. At the end of this long journey through the Anglo-American history of public carry, we conclude 
that respondents have not met their burden to identify an American tradition justifying the state's proper cause requirement. The Second Amendment guaranteed to all Americans the right to bear commonly used arms in public, subject to certain reasonable, well-defined restrictions. Those restrictions, for example, limit the intent for which one could carry arms, the manner by which one carried arms, or the exceptional circumstances under which one could not carry arms, such as before justices of the peace and other government officials. Apart from a few late 19th century outlier jurisdictions, American governments simply have not broadly prohibited the public carry of commonly used firearms for personal defense, nor, subject to a few late-in-time outliers, have American governments required law-abiding responsible citizens to demonstrate a special need for self-protection distinguishable from that of the general community in order to carry arms in public. The constitutional right to bear arms in public for self-defense is not a second-class right subject to an entirely different body of rules than the other Bill of Rights guarantees. We know of no other constitutional right that an individual may exercise only after demonstrating to government officers some special need. That is not how the First Amendment works when it comes to unpopular speech or the free exercise of religion. It is not how the Sixth Amendment works when it comes to a defendant's right to confront the witnesses against him, and it is not how the Second Amendment works when it comes to public carry for self-defense. New York's proper cause requirement violates the Fourteenth Amendment in that it prevents law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their right to keep and bear arms. We therefore reverse the judgment of the Court of Appeals and remand the case for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. Until next time, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.